Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, and this is the Apostle Paul speaking. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the middle of a series on 1 Corinthians Uh, This letter that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. If you're uh, astute and you've been paying attention, you'll notice that we skipped over a little bit in chapter 11 to get to this passage. Uh, Don't think that that I'm a coward and that I don't want to deal with the issue uh, there at the beginning of chapter 11. I'm not really looking forward to it, to be honest with you. It's all about male headship, and Paul even goes so far to say that women should just keep quiet in the church. But it's there. And so in, in, in God's providence, we knew this passage was coming, and today's a communion Sunday. We thought it would be good for us to deal with this uh, today and then deal with that whole stuff with women on Mother's Day next week. Won't that be fun? <laughs> Isn't that going to be great? So you're not going to want to miss that. Right? I, I have been set up by God to offend every single lady in the room on the day we're supposed to celebrate them. So uh, don't miss next week. Come back. Okay? probably the most famous part of this letter is chapter 13, which which many commentators and scholars call the love chapter. 
And almost everybody, whether you grew up in the church or not, is familiar with that chapter. But what I've noticed for the first time in taking the time to preach through this, this letter the way we've been doing is that the entire thing is really moving towards chapter 13 because the problem in the Corinthian church, which has prompted the Apostle Paul to write this letter to them, is that they are so uh, terrible at love. The Corinthians are talented, they're successful, they have strong opinions, they, they are studied and have good theology, but they are arrogant and rude and impatient. And we see it here again in this passage in verse 18. When you come together, Paul says, I hear that there are divisions among you. So he says, you're the church. You're God's people. You've been saved by grace, and yet you're fighting with one another. You're angry at one another. And he says, it shouldn't be that way. What I want to say this morning is sin always creates alienation. Sin is an, is an centrifugal force. It's always creating distance, moving us away from one another. And you know what a centrifuge is, don't you? It's a machine that spins around and around and around really, really fast to separate fluids of different densities. So our sin is always separating us from God, from one another. It's a centrifugal force. Pride and boasting and selfishness You know, where people are being controlled by these things and not humility and patience and kindness, as Blake prayed, the result is alienation, broken relationships, broken human community, okay? However, in the gospel, God has not only come in the person of Jesus Christ to heal our alienation from him, but he's also come to heal our alienation from one another. Sin is a centrifugal force. Grace is a centripetal force. It's like gravity that keeps the satellites in orbit around the earth. It brings us together. It keeps us all moving toward the center. It creates community. And five times in this passage, Paul uses a Greek word, synerkomai, which means literally to bring together or to connect. He says, when you come together, when you come together, the church is a people who live, you know, throughout the week in a bunch of different places, but once a week they come together to signify our being called into this place to worship God, but our being called together as a people. And so how do we then fight for intimacy and community with one another instead of alienation? And the answer is, the gospel creates community. Sin, pride, and selfishness create alienation. But what God is doing in the gospel in Jesus Christ to rescue us and to ransom us as his people is the very power that creates community. (coughs) Excuse me. So how then do we keep our hearts oriented to the truth of the gospel? See, that's the question. See, it's the question for every marriage. It's the question for every relationship. It's the question for every church. It's the question. How do we keep our hearts oriented to the truth of the gospel, which is the power of God to reverse the flow of alienation and to bring couples together to bring friends together, to bring a body of people together like this into intimacy and community. And the answer Paul gives here in these verses is so simple. He says there's a ritual that God in his wisdom has put into the very heart of our life together as a church, a meal that he commands that we eat together regularly. And we call it the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or whatever name it had for you when you when you were growing up. And see, the church has historically referred to the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. 
In other words, it's a place where you can come to have your heart, in whatever way it has been disoriented, reoriented to the truth of the gospel so that you believe more deeply in the grace of God and find grace to become the gospel to other people. The, the Lord's Supper is like spiritual gravity that keeps us planted in the reality of the gospel and not floating off into unbelief, if I could extend that metaphor. It creates community. It brings us together. And so on this Sunday where we celebrate it, let's talk about it together for a little while, can we? I want you to see three things, three ways. Uh, in, in this passage, Paul outlines for us that the Lord's Supper brings us together, and, and it's through three actions or three imperatives he gives us as we celebrate the meal together. First, we're told that it connects us, the Lord's Supper connects us to the story of God's salvation, both past and present, as we proclaim the Lord's death together in eating this meal. Secondly, it connects us to one another as the body of Jesus as we examine or discern. And thirdly, it connects us to God himself as we remember. Okay? So it connects us to the story of God's salvation as we proclaim. It connects us to one another as the body of Christ as we examine. And it connects us to God himself as we remember. Okay, let's look at those three points from this passage. First, with just this. The Lord's Supper brings us together by connecting us to the story of God's salvation, both past and present. Okay? Now, communities are created and defined by the stories they belong to. And sociologists call these stories meta-narratives, these overarching narrative, you know, storylines that a bunch of different people hold in common that brings them together in community and intimacy with one another. So every time you go to a baseball game, right, and you stand and you sing the national anthem with 50,000 people, or if you were able to attend a sporting event, you know, either after 9-11 or, or, or during a war, you know, some kind of war that's been going on for our nation or whatever it might be in these big emotional moments for our nation... You know, you stand, you sing the song, and the song crescendos to the last line, right? Or the land of the free and the home of the brave, and whoever's singing hits the high note, and you can't help, right? You begin to high-five people and get a little bit emotional. Does that happen to anybody else but me? Right? You know, you, you kind of think, I just, it just kind of carries you away, right? And what's happening? What's happening is it's a little miniature retelling of the story, the meta narrative of our country, it's a recounting of the battles that we've won and the obstacles we've overcome and that we persevered, you know, through to the end. And, and so the story then defines how we see ourselves, that Americans truly are, at least historically, you know, America is the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's how we see ourselves as a country. And so it's this powerful moment of, you know, I don't know this person next to me, but I'm going to high-five them and maybe put my arm around them. I mean, you know, you know you're just going to sing along because that's what happens. Now, Christians, in the same way, have a story that impacts how they see themselves, and it too creates a sense of community. And the Lord's Supper brings us together by connecting us to this story of God's salvation, both past and future. See, we're in the middle. We're in the middle, but there's a beginning and there's an end, and only when you understand both the beginning and the end do you know how to live in the middle. And so this supper orients us both to the beginning of our story and to the end to help us know how to live together in the middle. So let's talk about the beginning. Okay, Paul says when we eat this meal, look at verse 23, we are immediately transported back to the night on which he was betrayed. The night before Jesus was to go to the cross uh, to die for the sins of the world. And on that night, he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And it was that meal 
on that night, that is the pattern for this meal that has been celebrated by the church in perpetuity since his death, okay? But on that night, what, what, what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating is what's called the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was the remembrance or the reenactment of the Passover event, which was the defining moment of salvation for God's people in the Old Testament history. God came to his people Israel as they were slaves in Egypt, and through a miraculous hand, he delivered them out from the hand of Pharaoh through a series of, of horrible plagues and miraculous events, culminating in the death of the firstborn son in Israel. And God came to Moses and said, tonight the angel of death is going to go throughout the nation of, of Egypt, and he's going to strike down every firstborn son. But here's what I want you to do. All of the Israelites, my people, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to sacrifice the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it, put it on the doorposts of your homes. And when the angel of death comes, when he sees the blood of the substitute, the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost, he will pass over and not enter in and not your firstborn sons will not die. And, and the result was the angel of death came through All the firstborn sons of Egypt were killed, but God's people, Israel, escaped the angel of death through the death of a substitute, and God used that event to bring them up. Pharaoh said, go, we don't want you here anymore, and it was kind of the turning point, and God brought his people out of slavery. Now, Israel was commanded to celebrate the remembrance of the Passover event every year at the beginning of the year. And this is the meal Paul's referring to. On the night... When he was betrayed, Jesus was celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples. But the interesting thing about the meal on that night is that Jesus changed the liturgy. There was a very specific liturgy the the, the person who was presiding over the meal would follow. And Jesus changed it. He got up in the middle of the meal. Instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction in the wilderness, as the liturgy called for, and then passing that out for everybody to eat, he stood up and he said, "This, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body broken for you. And of course, it would have been a shock to everybody who was there. But Jesus is saying, the deliverance through the death of a substitute that you celebrated for all these hundreds of years has now come to pass, and I am the one who has come who's going to bring the ultimate salvation. And it's interesting, at the usual Passover meal, there would be bread and wine and lamb because in the original Passover event, the family ate the lamb they slaughtered. But here, very clearly we're told there's bread and there's wine, but there's no reference to there being lamb. They would have been eating lamb, no doubt. But when the gospel writers talk about the meal, they leave out the lamb. There's bread and there's wine, but there's no lamb. And the reason there's no lamb on the table is because the lamb of God is at the table. See, And when Jesus stood up at the Passover meal and said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was saying, I, I, I am the true Passover lamb. I am the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God will look upon my sacrifice and his wrath will not come down upon you. It will come down upon me. And the result is that you can be a people who are saved by his grace. And there's all of this language, right? The next morning he would hang upon a cross as our substitute. 
This language of for you, my body for you, is the language of substitution. So just as Israel in Egypt escaped the angel of death through the death of a substitute, so we are people whose salvation story begins with an act of heroism on the part of our Savior to be a substitute in our place. But remember, not just a past. There's also a future. And look what Paul says in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, what's going to happen? What's he going to bring? The answer in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible is that human history is headed towards a supper. Isn't that amazing? What's waiting for us in the new heavens and the new earth is a supper. It's a meal. And the significance of this, as one commentator put it, is, he said, satiation. Finally, the deepest longings of your heart, whatever they are, will be completely satisfied. You'll be free. You'll be full. There'll be no more emptiness ever again. And what Paul's saying is that when we come together around this table, we're entering into the future reality of God's rule and the renewal of all things and the joy that will finally be ours when we will sit down and we will eat with Jesus face to face. This meal is a foretaste of that meal. It's the hors d'oeuvres before the main course. And in it, we enter into the promise that God is remaking the world. And so our responsibility and duty then as we eat this meal together is what Paul says there in verse 26 that we are to proclaim. When we eat, we're proclaiming, Paul says. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim to the world the truth of the gospel and we proclaim it to one another. And we proclaim it to our own hearts. We are a people with a story, the story of God's salvation. We're not the free and the brave. That's not what we proclaim. We're we're not the good people, no. We're people who've been rescued by the death of our Savior. We're a saved people. We've been rescued by his grace. That's what we proclaim. God loves sinners. At the cross, Jesus died for the guilty and the broken. That's who we are. That's what defines us. That's what brings us together. That identity and that story that, that marks us as an absolutely unique community. Not our victories, but our failures are what bring us together. And so we're a community of grace. That's what this meal is reminding us of. But second, so the Lord's Supper brings us together around a story and an identity a story of salvation, both past and future, but it also brings us together by connecting us to one another as the body of Christ. The church is a body, right? Individual members organically connected to one another, and it's going to become very important for Paul in the next few chapters as we walk through it. So for Paul, if you call yourself a Christian, it means God has called you into the church to live your life as part of the church, not peripherally, not marginally, because you're a part of the body. I've never had this experience, but what happens if you wake up in the morning and your hands decide, you know what, we're going to take the day off today? I don't know, but I'm sure it's pretty bad, right? What happens if you wake up and part of your body just says, you know, I think I just need a break? What's it like to live without your hands or your eyes or your ears? I'm grateful I've never had to experience that. But, but part of what Paul's going to be teaching us is that church, the church is a body made up of different members who, like our physical bodies, live interdependently with one another. And the Lord's Supper is the expression and the reinforcement of this body identity for us. And that's where the Corinthians were really getting it wrong big time. See, in the early church, 
This meal was the climax of the worship service, but it was a full meal. We really, we really jip you, right? Not just a little piece of bread, which really is not even a piece of bread, right? And a little cup of juice. The worship service in the early church would have concluded around tables where the church would have enjoyed a meal together as an expression of their fellowship with one another. So every family would have brought food from home. Everybody would have stayed around, eaten together as a church family, much like a community group setting in our church. And the reason we eat together in community groups is because it creates intimacy. When you share a meal, you share more than a meal, right? But here's what was happening. Some of the people in the church came to this meal. You can see this in verse 21 and, and down, down in those verses. Some were coming to the meal, and they were gobbling all the food down as fast as they could, and then leaving early because they had such a bad attitude towards everybody else. They didn't want to eat together. They didn't like one another very much. Not only that, Paul says there were some who were wealthy people, and they had more food than they needed, and, and then there were others who were poor, and they didn't have enough food to feed their families, and they were meant, because this, is, this meal is a sign of our union with one another, they were meant to share with one another. The meal itself was meant to be an expression of what we read in Acts, of their having all things in common together, their unity and brotherhood and love for one another. But Paul says what happened was, verse 21, is that at this meal, some went hungry, Others got drunk. And that means that some had an excess of food and wine, but they ate and drank more than they needed to, gobbling it down before anybody else could get any and refusing to share with those who had nothing to eat. They were being stingy and selfish with their stuff. And it prompts Paul to say some very strong words, verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. They were being stingy. They weren't sharing what they had. There were some that had more than they needed, and they went to excess while others went away hungry. And this is such, you know, for us, you know, it's not that big a deal. But Paul looks at it, he says, God's killing some of you because of this. He's making you sick. He's disciplining you because what you're doing is a terrible, terrible injustice. I mean, does that, does that land on anybody else the way? Serious stuff. You see, the heart of the gospel is that you're saved by grace, not by works. And what that does is it levels people. It strips away any superiority, inferiority dynamic in the church. You can't boast. I mean, you can't look at other people and feel like you're better than them. So the gospel, the reality of salvation by grace, through through faith alone in Christ alone, it takes away all rivalries, all competitiveness, so there can't be any division or disunity if the gospel's operative in your heart or in the community. And yet these people here in 1 Corinthians 11 were bringing their disdain for others to the supper, and they were eating to celebrate God's love for them, God's grace to them in Jesus Christ, but not willing to show grace to others. They came celebrating, rejoicing in God's forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross while living in unforgiveness. Their hearts were hard towards other people in the church. They were a walking contradiction of the gospel. And that's why Paul says when they gathered together to eat and drink, it wasn't, he says, it's not even the Lord's Supper you're eating, right? You're eating and drinking judgment on yourself, he says, because they're, verse 22, despising the church. 
That word means they were making light of their obligation to one another. They were devaluing their body identity. They were acting as if they weren't independently connected to one another, and so they were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. So if this morning, if there's somebody you're not speaking to in this room because you're, you're so mad at them, or if there's somebody that you're harboring a grudge against or you've been cold towards because they've upset you or hurt your feelings or you're bitter at somebody because of a past wound and you're withholding forgiveness from that person, what Paul would say, and I think what this text would say, is you may believe you're a sinner saved by grace, but your heart is still full of unbelief. You may say, you know, I believe the gospel, but you're living practically as if you don't believe it, as if it isn't true after all. And according to the Apostle Paul, the Lord's Supper, whenever it rolls around... In this church on the first Sunday of the month is when we celebrate it. It's an opportunity to examine or discern. Those are the two imperative verbs that he gives us there. Uh, Let a person examine himself, verse 28, so that, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. To examine there means to take a spiritual inventory of your heart, to evaluate, to judge, to test your grasp of the gospel of grace. To discern the body means that you you give an honest evaluation of how well you are taking the reality of the gospel and applying it to the relationships in your life. God's forgiven you. Are you a person who shows forgiveness? God has been compassionate upon you in your sins. Are you a person who's compassionate upon other people in their struggles or weaknesses? Are you living horizontally the reality of the grace that is yours vertically? Discern the body, he says. And this is why, this, this call to examine or to discern is why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we take the time to what we, what we call fence the table. We, we call you to a self-examination because we want to heed the warning in this passage. We, we, <laughs> we don't want anybody to fall asleep or to get sick because they're drinking judgment on themselves. Right? We don't want anybody to drink unworthily and, and, and bring down God's judgment on them or, or upon the church. So we typically say something like this. I hope you've been paying attention when we've done this. We say, you know, think about two things, okay? This is what it means to eat worthily and not unworthily. You know, are you, we usually say something like, are you a Christian? Is your faith truly in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because this is a meal for all those who've repented of their sins and believed in him. But secondly, are you at peace, Right? Are, are, is there a need for you to be reconciled in your, you know, in your relationships or in that work? Are you in your own conscience at peace? Now, I want, to want, you, here's, I want to clear up some confusion because here's what I'm afraid gets communicated in that sometimes. What we don't mean, okay? When we fence the table, what we don't mean, we're not asking, do you feel guilty? See, if you feel guilty, it doesn't disqualify you from coming to this table. You don't have to clean up your life to come to Jesus, Right? We on the same page with that? You don't have to clean up your life to come to this table. This is a table that's been prepared in the wilderness for sinners. And if you're a sinner but you feel guilty, if you feel a sense of condemnation for your sins, it could be one of two things. It could be that you're not a Christian yet. You're not resting in Jesus. You're still looking to your good works to save you. And in that case, you need to run to him. He's what you need, not this cup or this bread. It could be That you're in Christ truly, but you're having a hard time taking the truth of the gospel and drilling it down into your heart until you really start to believe it so it chips away at the guilt you feel. And if that's you, then even in in your guilt, you need to run to this table to find consolation. 
but which is true of you? See, that's where the discernment part comes in. But a Christian is a person who says, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And then he or she comes to this table to find help with their unbelief, okay? But the second thing, so it's not do you feel guilty, it's are you truly resting in Jesus Christ as your Savior? But second thing is it's not, we don't ask, see, this is subtle. We don't ask, is there peace? We say, are you at peace? And this is where a lot of confusion happens. There's a difference. See, sometimes conflict is unavoidable and even good, and you might be in the middle of the hard part, but is your conscience clear? See, have you been living in line with the gospel toward the person that there's trouble with so that you're internally at peace, even if there isn't peace between you? And that's what it means to drink worthily and not unworthily. So every time we do this, we take the time to work through these things because we want to heed Paul's warning. It's, this, is, this is serious, serious stuff. Paul says the Lord's Supper brings us together by connecting us to the story of God's salvation as we proclaim by connecting us to one another as the body of Christ, as we discern or examine ourselves. But thirdly, he goes on to say, it connects us to God himself. See, Paul goes on to say, verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Right, so we read the parable in Luke 14 this past week in community Bible reading about the people at the wedding banquet. It's one of my favorite stories in the, in the New Testament who were rushing in to get the best seats. Right? The way, the way, when we, the way that the, the middle school guys get out of this room as fast as they can to get in front of the line over there and we have something to eat over on the other side. Right? Making sure they get four pieces of chicken so the people at the very end are like, have a little, like a little leg, like about this big. Jesus says, he's offering the parable to correct them. He says, go last. See, the gospel will make you the kind of person who doesn't have to go first, you go last. He doesn't need the place of honor. You go to the low place. Don't run ahead so that you can be at the head of the line. Paul says, or Jesus says, let others go ahead of you. And that's what Paul means. He says, when you come together, wait. Wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, you won't rush to make sure you get enough food. You can focus entirely on unselfishly caring for and serving others and putting their needs first and your needs last. So Paul's describing a whole way of life. And here's the great thing for us, is that the Lord's Supper not only is the model for the way we're to live towards one another, it is also the power for it. And that's the third point, that the Lord's Supper brings us together by connecting us to God himself and providing spiritual nourishment and power for us for the work of love. But how? And this is where we've got to finish. How? How does eating the Lord's Supper connect us to God? Let me ask it another way. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says here in Verses 24, 25, when he says, This is my body for you. This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood shed for you. What does he mean when he says, This is my body? Because you see, the way you answer that question is the main reason for the denominational differences in Protestant Christianity. Uh, The Protestant movement split into what are now the modern-day denominations, whether it's Lutheranism or Reformed Presbyterian churches or Baptist non-denominational churches charismatic-type churches over the answer to that question. I don't know if you knew that. So for simplicity's sake, and I know the kids are coming back in, let's just bear with them. For simplicity's sake, 
I'm going to split up all the different views into three categories. What I'm going to call the high view, the low view, and the middle or the moderate view. So the high view is a typical Roman Catholic view that teaches that the bread and, and the cup are the real or they become the real and the actual body and blood of Jesus. So when Jesus said, this is my body, he was speaking literally. He didn't say, this represents my body. He said, this is my body. Okay, in reaction to that, the Protestant Reformation was a pendulum swing away from that historic Roman Catholic theology so that most Protestant churches today would say, no, no, that's wrong. It's merely symbolic. The bread and the cup are just a memorial. Or they're, just, they're nothing more than a remembrance of Jesus' death. There's no real spiritual significance in it whatsoever, which is why a lot of branches of the church only celebrate the Lord's Supper quarterly or even sometimes once or twice a year. Okay, we in this church are Protestants, but we don't really fit into either of those categories. Okay, there's some problems with both. You think about the high view. When Jesus said, this is my body at the Last Supper with his disciples... Right? His body, of course, was holding the bread and the cup, so he had to be talking symbolically at some level. However, the low view can't be right either because you have passages like John 6, which should be alarming to you, and it was to the people who heard it for the first time. Our assurance of pardon, which Blake read a little while ago, in which Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true, true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. That's, that's strong language. Jesus says, my flesh is true food. So he doesn't see the Lord's Supper as a memorial with no spiritual significance. He feeds us and nourishes us at the table. He comes and he abides with us, which means he makes himself known to us, and his person and his power come to reside in us as a result of eating and drinking at this meal. Okay, would you say, aren't we back to the Catholic view now? No, because what Jesus says in John 6 really creeps people out, and they begin to leave from following him. They say, do you, do you mean we must literally eat your flesh? That's gross. And his response, which isn't printed for you down in verse 63, is he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus seems to be talking about the Lord's Supper, but he connects the practice of eating the bread and drinking the cup with feeding on his words. And what that means is that the purpose of this supper is to help us not just believe the gospel, but to feed on the truth of the gospel and to drink of the truth of the gospel and to be nourished and strengthened by it. And Jesus says the way we do this is by remembering. You see that word remember there? When you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And here's the thing. That doesn't just mean recall or bring things to the forefront of your mind. Remember, the opposite of remember is dismember. Right? Dismember. And we know what that is, don't we? It means to cut off a part of the body. And so using the same metaphor, to remember means to graft or to sow or to fuse. So what Jesus is teaching us is this. If you're proud, if you're self-righteous and judgmental, then you don't believe that you are a sinner and God saved you by his sheer grace. You may believe it up here, but you don't, Remember, you don't know it here. You need to remember it. You need to eat that truth. You need to digest it. It needs to become a part of you, right? It needs, it needs to be a living reality in your heart that shapes the way you think of yourself and the way you treat other people. Same thing, if you're despondent and full of anxiety, then you don't believe that God is for you. 
right? You may believe it in theory, but it's not a spiritual reality in your heart, and you need to remember, you need to, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what Jesus is promising in John 6, and what Paul is alluding to here in 1 Corinthians 11, is that in a unique way, when we eat and drink his words, the truth, the gospel, when we do that, we remember, uh, when we celebrate this meal together, there's a remembrance, a living remembrance that comes into our life. God comes to us and spiritually grafts the truth of the gospel into our hearts to give us a greater faith that will lead to a greater obedience. Uh, In the Lord of the Rings, the book, not the movie, I'm reading this to my kids again, so I've been thinking about it, so bear with me. Probably lots of Lord of the Rings illustrations coming down the pipe. Just be ready. Uh, Pippin, who's one of the hobbits, is part of the siege of Minas Tirith at the end of the book, and the city is surrounded by the enemy armies. And they've broken through the gates, and there appears to be no way of escape. And he's lost all hope. And he's despairing. And then at the last minute, when all hope seems gone, he hears a distant horn. And it is the horn of the king of Rohan, who is coming, riding to their rescue. This neighboring kingdom of men who's come to save them. And the battle turns, and the city, because of their coming, is delivered. And in the book... We're told that for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear the sound of a distant horn without breaking into tears. And the reason is because the horn was a physical, audible reminder of his salvation. So when he heard the horn, it jarred him and he remembered, he relived the events of his salvation all over again. It connected him to the past. He remembered the sacrifices of his friends. He remembered the king who rode to his death for his sake. And it produced a living memory in his heart. And what happened was, no matter how grumpy he might be, for the rest of his life when he heard the sound of the horn, he couldn't stay grumpy because it jarred into him a remembrance that every day of his life was sheer gift and there was a joy that came into his heart because of it. No matter how despondent he was, if he heard the sound of the distant horn, there would be a joy that would come into his heart that would change him. What Paul teaches us in this passage is that this meal is a horn in the distance. And so he says, remember my body broken for you. Remember my blood shed for you. That is the power for you to go and live in obedience to my commands. And so as we prepare to come to this meal, let's pray together this morning, can we? Father, I do pray that you would make this meal as we celebrate it together this morning, like a horn in the distance. And that it would produce in us a living remembrance of the great love that you have shown for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Feast on uh, the words uh, of God's love for you in this benediction. Drink them. Don't just, don't just put your minds on them. Ask God to bring them into the very center of your heart uh, so they would change you and empower you to go and live a life of love and service to others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.